everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown after a one-week hiatus. I'm glad to be back and back into our lessons for this week. Last week, we had a family worship weekend at Solid Rock, so we didn't have kids ministry, and then we also had a men's conference, so the Bible Breakdown, unfortunately, did not make the cut last week, but very excited to be back checking on our favorite desert dwellers this week. That being, of course, the Israelites who are hanging out in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Um, Well, you know what? They're not headed toward the promised land anymore. They are actually going to reach the promised land this week. Woohoo! Or, mm, unfortunately, things are not going to go as planned for our beloved Israelites. The people are once again going to choose rebellion against God. Oh, it hurts reading over and over again about it. It's like when you watch a movie and you just want to shake the main character and be like, don't you see what's happening? Of course, it's a lot easier when you're not actually going through it, right? But we are going to be looking into this um, event that happens as they get onto the border of the promised land where they are going to send some spies to check out the land. And that is going to be in Numbers 13 and then moving into chapter 14 as well. This is something that I've alluded to in many of the Bible breakdowns previous now. We'll finally find out the fate of the generation who originally makes it to the promised land. So starting in Numbers chapter 13, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 3, it says this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. So God has Moses, remember of course Moses being the primary spokesperson for God, the one who mediates between God and the people. Um, He tells Moses to get a group together to do some recon on the promised land. Um, and he, these are all going to be people that are kind of like high-ranking people in Israel. So they're not; these are not people that they're like, oh, who cares what they think? These are people who are going to be respected. So when they come back with a report, people will respect them because of their stature within the the different tribes. And so there's each there's one uh, from each tribe. Uh, then we get in the following verses, we get uh, all basically all the people who go, um, which I'm not going to read all of those, but. There is one mentioned in verse 16. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Okay, so we get a little bit of a spotlight here on Joshua. Confession, I did not, I do not think I have ever known that Joshua's name was Hoshea and got changed to Joshua. So I learned something, as I often do when I do these. Um, That was what I learned today. So he was Hoshea. And then he got Joshua instead. So if you know any Joshua's, you can call them Hosea and confuse confuse them greatly. And you'll be like, you should read Numbers or at least listen to somebody who reads Numbers. Anyways, I digress. So this is a clear moment where Joshua is being shown as an important person. So that's really what that verse is meant to communicate to us is that Joshua is an important person. So nobody else gets that kind of shout. Though we're going to see, obviously, there's going to be another important one, too. If you are familiar at all with the story, you know who that is. I won't spoil it if you're not. Um, Then as we move down to verse 17, 
It says, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Okay, so they're given this list of things that they're supposed to figure out about the land, the nature of the people, the nature of their settlements, the nature of the uh, people themselves, um, the produce, all that good stuff. That's kind of what Moses is sending them to find out. Now, if you listen to the Bible breakdown with any regularity, you know that I generally give the people in these situations, in these stories, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt. I try to remind us, hey, we're reading of it from afar. It's a lot easier for us. They're just people. They make mistakes. This is so clearly a test that I cannot believe that they missed it. How many times do they have to run into something that seems impossible and have God deliver them before they realize that it really doesn't matter what the barrier that they're going to face in the land is? This is so clearly a test that, honestly, if I was one of these spies, I'd be like, guys, I bet we're going to find some really awesome land and it's going to be guarded by some really strong people and they're going to be really well fortified because God's going to want to show how awesome he is when we overtake them. That That's what, like, I, I have to assume after all of these things that they would assume. Um, when I was in junior high, we had a teacher named Mr. Purrier, and he would um, occasionally have to leave the classroom for some purpose. And what he would do is he would say, if anyone, if anyone talks while I'm gone, um, you're in big trouble. And he would do this. And the first time he did it, he like came back and he like came back to the door of the room so sneakily and quietly that he caught like a bunch of us talking. And he brings us out into the hall. He tells us, guys, I was really clear. It was an all guys class. He said, guys, I was really clear what I expected from you. And, you know, gave us talking to him. We're like, oh, yeah, okay. And so after he'd done that like three or four times through the year, you would think that when he left, we would know that somehow he would find out. He would find out who talked. And a lot of times people would tell on each other. So that's another thing. He had spies who gave a report also. It all connects. But by the end of the year when he's doing this and people are still talking, he's like, seriously? Like, why? You know, it's so easy. Just stay quiet for a couple minutes while I'm gone. And that's exactly what this reminds me of. And... Admittedly, I was sometimes in that group that got called out into the hall. So maybe I am being a little too hard on them. Hmm. I'm going to have to repent right here, right here in the middle of the Bible breakdown. Okay, maybe it's not as easy as it seems. Well, it is easy, but then we still just mess up. So in case you weren't sure, they're going to mess up on this. So they go all over the area. Um, They bring back, apparently there's this giant cluster of grapes that they're like carrying on a pole, like between two people. It's so big, which is kind of awesome. And they come back after 40 days. And so remember, 40 days, when we see it in the Old Testament, doesn't always mean a literal 40 days. Sometimes it's just like a like a long period of time. Like when we say this week's been a month or something like that, you know, we're just indicating that it's felt really long. Or when we say, yeah, it took forever, didn't literally take forever, it just took a long time. Sometimes 40 days can be that. Sometimes it is specific. It's hard to know all the time. 
But it was a pretty good amount of land they covered. So if it was a little longer than 40 days, I think that'd be understandable. But anyways, they come back. And so then they give a report. So they get back. The the people um, are at this place called Kadesh, um, sometimes called Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea, if you've ever heard of that. Um, that's the significance of that. This is the place that the significance of this event is also often tied to. So um, if you ever hear that, you'll know why that's something that people know. Um, but this is what they say, starting in verse 27. It says, And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land, in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So this is the report. They're like, the land's awesome. It flows with milk and honey, but the people are strong. Um, there's this group here, this group here, this group here. Um, and so Caleb, he chimes in. He's like, uh, no, like, hey, we can we can do this. We can handle this. Um, we should we should go up and overcome it. And I think we know by the response we're going to see from the Lord later on behalf of Caleb that this is not that he necessarily thinks that they are stronger in and of themselves, but he is recognizing that God is uh, able to bring them through this. Um, and then he gets shouted down basically by the other 10. He's like, nope, we are actually not able to go up against them, Caleb. Be quiet. And um, so they talk about how the people are really big. Nephilim is this like possibly like overblown, like maybe over um, over exaggerated group that were like giants or maybe they actually were giants. It's, you know, we weren't there. It's hard to know. But it had this reputation for being giants. These these folks are mentioned actually even back in uh, Genesis 6 around the flood. Um, it's kind of a, they're almost kind of this mystical um, group. But either way, they apparently saw people that were taller than them, uh, I think is what we can really take from that. And he said, we seem like grasshoppers to ourselves. And then they probably thought the same thing. So that's what the people say. Or I'm sorry, that's what the spies say. So 10 say, impossible. They are too well armed. They are too tall and they are too well fortified, even though the land is awesome. We get one person here saying, no, we can go up right now and occupy it. We'll be able to do it. Um, but obviously 10 beats one and it's not like Caleb is any more, uh, of high repute at this time than those other 10. We haven't heard from Joshua yet, but we will. And so this is the people's response down as we get into chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. 
tough one. These people, they're getting on my last nerve. They're getting on God's last nerve. The people mourn over this report. They complain, aka grumble against Moses and Aaron. And of course, they long for Egypt like they do every single time something difficult comes up. Every time something difficult comes up, it's, man, wasn't Egypt so awesome? Let's go back there. And they even go as far as like, hey, let's go ahead and choose a leader to get us back because Moses and Aaron won't take us back. Uh, Joshua tries to help um, here in, as we move down to verse 7, it says uh, that Joshua said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So Joshua tries to help and he gives this great perspective on the fact that God has brought them this far. He has gotten them through many dangers. And that if if the, it is the Lord's will, if the Lord delights in us, then he's going to bring them into the land. They do not have protection if they are up against the Lord. That protection is removed. Um, so he's like, we, we don't have to fear them because God's with us. And then the people's response to the absolute opposite of heresy is to stone him. Which, of course, if you were to speak against the Lord, you would be stoned. And, of course, now Joshua is speaking on behalf of the Lord in truth, and he, they want to stone him because they don't like what he has to say. So God uh, appears, um, and it says he appears in his glory, and this is the angry glory. This is the wrathful glory, not the not the sweet, loving glory right this moment. It is discipline is love, but in this, this is this is scary presence of the Lord that appears. And God has this time again where he says he wants to destroy the people and make a great nation of Moses. Now, something very similar to this happened in the uh, around the golden calf incident. And we've got a we've got a Bible breakdown on the golden calf. If you want more commentary on that specific kind of interaction and what's going on there, I would point you to that because it was a decently long conversation. So I don't want to repeat it just a couple weeks later. Um, But basically... Um, Moses responds as he did then to this with humility, reminding God of the promises that he made. God, of course, being who he is, holds to his promise that he made to Abraham, that he would make Abraham a great nation. But what he does do is promise judgment on this generation that has been so hard-headed, that has grumbled, that has been so faithless. Um, But yes, as far as specifically um, God kind of telling Moses this, that he wants to destroy Israel and make a great nation of him. The golden calf episode, you can find some commentary on the, what that means, how we, how we deal with that. So, um, but what we know from here is obviously that God again decides not to destroy them, but he is going to punish them. And he gives us what this punishment is going to be when he's talking to Moses and Aaron, telling Moses and Aaron what they are going to tell to the Israelites working our way down to verse 28 of chapter 14. God talking to Moses and Aaron says, Say to them, as I live, declare the Lord, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. 
Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. So God says that the generation of adults basically won't go into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. I will have you notice that um, Moses and Aaron are not mentioned here. Just kind of, just kind of hold that in the back of your mind. No, I won't talk about it now. Not now. And that the children who were apparently the ones that this very, um, I don't know, they guess they thought they were being very logical and very uh, protective of the people by saying, no, we shouldn't go in there. This, the people that they were trying to supposedly protect, the ones they're li- worried about, the little ones, those will be the ones who actually end up inheriting the land. So that generation is going to get a chance to respond in obedience where their previous generation uh, did not respond in obedience. So basically all of this people are there going to die in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. So this wandering is going to be for 40 years. Again, we hold about 40 I don't know if they had a calendar out and we're marking the day specifically, but it was going to be a while. And we knew it was a generation. So um, that's the wandering. And the uh, 10 spies other than Joshua and Caleb actually die by a plague. So they don't get to see um, any more of the wandering in the wilderness. Instead, they are brought to a very uh, immediate uh, judgment, which um, knowing that they are kind of the ones who led the people into this disobedience um, because of their faithlessness, um, I think kind of makes sense for what we've seen in a lot of this, uh, these Old Testament narratives uh, with God wanting to keep his people um, pure and to um, keep them holy and to not have people who are leading the people astray um, remaining within the community, the faith community. So that's the story. And so they are going to Wander actually, it's in at the end of this chapter. Um, some of the people go out to to battle without um, without the Lord's command, and uh, then they get defeated. And what they said comes true because they're not listening to the Lord. It's this whole great irony. They could have done that and been victorious, and said they did it without the Lord, and of course they were defeated. So that's how chapter fourteen ends, and it starts this long period of wandering. So we talked about it a little bit when we talked about the tabernacle, knowing, of course, that just because the people get into the land doesn't mean they're immediately going to have a, a temple, like a permanent place that they would have the worship of God. But it is almost this foreshadowing that uh, the people are going to need a mobile temple for a while. So we know 40 years at least um, that they are going to need that. And then, of course, it's going to be a couple hundred more years before uh, Solomon actually builds the temple. Um, but that's that's the story. It's a, it's a very uh, sad ending to a long journey that they have for these uh, older Israelites. Um, we're going to see eventually that the younger generation of Israelites do make it into the promised land. Um, but after all the things they went through, escaping from Egypt, the plagues, the Passover, crossing the Red Sea, manna in the wilderness... Um, Being given the law, having God's presence descend on the tabernacle, all these things weren't good enough to give the people enough faith to challenge another or to face another hardship and to know that the Lord was going to bring them through it.
So it actually reminds me, as we seek some application, of a nice little, what I would call just like a little, like, American Southern Christian truism. That's what I would call it. You've probably heard somebody say it before. Uh, if God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. You've probably heard that before. Now, I want to preface this. I find that most of these American Christian Southern truisms are not helpful at all. They are not very helpful, mostly because they are not truly scriptural. A couple of ones you've probably heard, uh, man plans and God laughs. Uh, don't take too many drives with the devil or pretty soon he'll drive. That's a fun one. That one's kind of old. And uh, God won't give you anything you can't handle. The reason I'm not crazy about these is because they have a kernel of truth in them, but they are ultimately not terribly helpful because they don't tell the full story. Um, and they don't, I, I don't think, fully accurately or um, portray the Christian life. So if something doesn't, if something has a, even a kernel of untruth in it, I think we should probably throw it out. Um, the one that I, the one of these that I think that feels pretty good is the one I mentioned at the beginning. If God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. And the reason I like that one is because God does bring us to difficult situations. It's not like this move into Canaan was a stroll down Main Street. Uh, there was obviously going to be challenges and hardships, and they were going to probably be scared, um, even as we see in the book of Joshua, as they actually move into the land. And like they do face difficulties, mostly when they don't obey the Lord. Um, but God brought them, to, brings us to difficulties. He brought them to difficulties. He brings us to difficulties because he has a plan to bring us through it. Now, there's two emphases that are important. One is that he's the one who brings us through it, not that we get through it. That's one of the issues with the God won't give you anything you can't handle. Um, he He will give us plenty of things that we can't handle. He won't. Uh, I think where we kind of get that is from when he, when uh, in, I think it's First uh, Corinthians, it says he won't bring you to any temptation that basically like you won't be able to say no to, like he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle. So basically we always have the opportunity to say no to sin. Um, but there are plenty of situations in which we will find ourselves feeling very helpless um, and need to rely on God. And that's actually sometimes the best position for us to be in and the one that ultimately leads us most to God. So for, for us, as we face difficult situations, when God has brought you to a situation um, and maybe it's a, a conflict with a, a friend or family member, um, maybe it's some sort of, uh, maybe a job loss, a job situation. How are we going to make ends meet? Uh, maybe it's a, an illness or, um, a disability that's causing just a total, um, just flipping your life upside down. None of those things again are, um, things that God wants to exist. They unfortunately exist because of sin, but, they're things that he will use to grow us. And they're things that as we rely on him and as we press in and say, God, how can I be obedient to you in this, that he will bring us through. It's not always going to be the way we think or the way we want to be brought through. And that can be very difficult as well. Uh, ultimately, he has our good in mind and his good for us is us becoming more like Christ rather than us being the happiest. And I think that's sometimes where we can we can really struggle to know, like, is God in this? Because it seems still really difficult. But having the confidence that if we are 
believers in Jesus that we are going to be brought into difficult situations, but in obedience, we will be brought through it in a way, even if it's not how we expect, even if it doesn't all turn out right, so to speak, quote unquote, right, um, that there is goodness for us on the other side, that there's growth on the other side, that there's a transformation in our hearts that brings us closer to God on the other side. So that's one thing I think we learned from the Israelites here, that as we look at the story, we wish they would have chosen that, that they would have chosen the difficult path that God was clearly leading them toward, and that they would have gotten to see him lead them through that difficulty. And then the second thing as we apply, and this is something that comes up regularly, and it's something that is, uh, I think, really important for us to remember. Um, In hardship, a lot of times we find ourselves not running to the Lord, but running to sin in our lives. Uh, Sin remains in our lives because it offers us something. Okay, we, as ugly as it sounds, sin in our lives offers us something that we find valuable. So if sin is still in our life, it's because we find some value in it. Um, and sometimes it's whatever, whatever that sin is, whether, you know, it's, um, gossip or if it's, um, greed or pride or lust or, um, envy, whatever it may be, um, whatever thing it makes us feel a little better about what's going on in our life, whatever makes us feel like we're able to cope. Sin effectively is just a really negative coping mechanism, um, it remains in our lives because it offers us something. And in hardship, we can often find ourselves more tempted toward those sins because we can seek maybe like an instant gratification. We don't want to take the the long road of trusting in the Lord and waiting to see on the other side how he worked. We want, well, I know that if I can tell my friend Tom about this other thing that Joey's doing, I'm going to feel a lot better about the situation I'm in because at least I'm not as bad as Joey. And that gives me some instant relief, even though it is sinful. And that it obviously doesn't last. And not to mention, it's harmful to Joey. Now I'm creating a difficulty for Joey because I'm talking about him to Tom. So that's just an example. But we we can sometimes seek that instant gratification that we think that sin will offer us. But we know, of course, that it doesn't. We have to realize more and more. And hopefully the more we realize the futility of sin, we realize the goodness of God and what he offers. Even when it's difficult what God offers is best for us. Playing the long game, playing the game of being faithful to God versus trying to take the easy way out and find something that'll make me feel better for a moment. And then of course, I'll be right back in the hardship and I'll create this cycle where I feel now bad that I chose sin over God. And so now I'm really dealing with the shame of that. Out of that shame, I'm going to choose sin again. And here we go. Now we're going round and round. And we're stuck in this kind of sinful cycle of shame Uh, leading to sin, which leads to more shame, and so on and so forth. In hardship, we want to become more and more aware in our lives that what God is calling us to, the obedience and faithfulness to him, even in the midst of hardship, is ultimately what is going to allow us to submit to God as he brings us through difficulties, and then is going to be better for us in the long run, even if it feels like it hurts more. Because what the ultimate good is for us to be is obedient to God and to be growing to reflect Christ more and more in our lives. That's the good that we press on toward, to be more and more like Christ in the way that we act. And it doesn't always feel great. Christ didn't always feel great in his time on earth. Sometimes it was very difficult. Sometimes he wept. Sometimes he was very angry and very frustrated 
and very lonely. And we will experience those things too as we seek a life that emulates what Christ does. We, we have to know that those are part and parcel of following Jesus on this side of heaven. But hopefully, again, as we go through more and more, as we submit to God more and more, we realize, you know what, the, the difficulty of doing things God's way leads to a better result at the end and is ultimately for our good. And I recognize that and for God's glory, ultimately. Whereas when I seek these sinful opportunities, to just make things better. I know it just ends up worse than it was before. Hopefully the more times that we confront that reality, the more that we find ourselves acting in obedience. So I hope that as we see the Israelites, once again, choose the easy way out. Egypt is their sin that they keep wanting to run to that they think is going to provide them this gratification. And of course we know will not. Hopefully as we see them, we'll recognize that they are a lot more like us than we want to admit, but also that we can realize that God is a lot more wonderful, glorious, gracious, and loving than we realize. That as we see continued people who are acting faithlessly, that we get to continue to see a faithful God in their lives, and we can continue to see a faithful God in our lives as well. (music) 